Over the centuries, it has been known by many terms. Hippocrates called it apoplexy in one of its oldest descriptions. In some other terms, it was known as the stroke of God's hands and a dreadful visitation. A stroke, as we know it now, was felt for a long time to be a consequence of some wrongdoing or an act of ill fate. It wasn't until post-mortem examinations demonstrated cerebral hemorrhages and cerebral obstruction that the concept of stroke shifted from a person's fate to a distinct and understandable disease. For patients presenting with a stroke today, timing is everything, treatments are advancing, and the stroke of God's hands might be reversible. Today, your patient has a stroke, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled A Stroke of Bad Luck and is all about ischemic stroke. All right, time for our minute physiology. The cerebral vasculature can be divided into the anterior and posterior circulation. The anterior circulation is supplied by the internal carotid arteries and branches into the anterior and middle cerebral arteries. The posterior circulation, which feeds the brainstem and posterior brain, is supplied by the vertebral arteries. The vertebral arteries join to form the basilar artery, which then branches into the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, the pontine branches, and the posterior cerebral artery. The anterior and posterior circulation is joined by the circle of Willis and provides a collateral circulation to the cerebral tissues. So now that we know our basic physiology, let's move on to our approach. As always, consider the stability of your patient before proceeding. If your patient is demonstrating signs of instability, such as abnormal vital signs, altered level of consciousness, or a seizing, make sure you call for help. As well, Given how critical rapid assessment and management is, make sure that your senior or staff is always aware if you suspect an acute stroke in your patient. History taking in stroke revolves critically around timing for three main reasons. First, it can tell you about diagnosis. Vascular events are almost always acute onset rather than gradual or progressive. Secondly, it's important for prognosis and risk stratification. With a transient ischemic attack, or TIA, the risk of recurrence is highest in the first 48 hours following symptoms. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, it can determine whether a patient would benefit from certain treatments. Knowing time of onset is probably the most important question in an acute stroke. On history, find out when the patient was last seen normal, which may be different than time of onset. For example, if a patient woke up with symptoms, their last seen normal may have been the night before. Get an idea of the patient's presentation and whether it makes sense with what you know about neuroanatomy. Right-sided weakness and aphasia should raise more suspicion than, say, bilateral arm paresthesias. The typical presentation of stroke symptoms is unilateral, with weakness or numbness affecting the face, arm, or leg, or all three. Aphasia and dysarthria are common presenting complaints. Other complaints can include vision loss, diplopia, difficulty with coordination or balance, vertigo, nausea, or vomiting. Remember that stroke typically produces negative symptoms, such as subjective sensory loss, rather than positive symptoms, such as paresthesias. If the patient gives a history of stereotyped episodes of visual distortion or flashing lights, think about alternative diagnoses like seizure or migraine, which are common stroke mimics. Syncope, or altered level of consciousness, is also relatively uncommon as a primary presenting complaint in stroke, 
and should prompt suspicion for other etiologies. That said, the brain is strange and wonderful and can produce all sorts of symptoms, so any acute-onset focal neurologic deficit should raise suspicion for a possible vascular event. Finally, ask about a history of vascular risk factors, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking history, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery disease, or prior stroke. Presence of these risk factors can help you delineate possible etiologies. Now onto the physical exam. The purpose of the physical exam in an acute stroke setting is to localize the lesion. For example, where is the clot? In a subacute stroke setting, where you are seeing a patient who has already had a stroke confirmed on imaging, the exam becomes more of a way to document the patient's deficits and how they may be improving or worsening over time. The neurological exam can be pared down, so to speak, to focus on the major things that will be affected in stroke, namely strength, sensation, language, vision, and coordination. On the cranial nerve exam, focus on visual fields, eye movements, and facial asymmetry. Do a screening motor exam, remembering that stroke produces a pyramidal pattern of weakness, affecting predominantly extensor muscles in the upper limbs and flexor muscles in the lower limbs. Check sensation using a pin or light touch, and examine for sensory neglect or extinction by providing sensory stimulus to two separate points and assessing whether the patient can only identify one of the two. Check for ataxia using the finger-to-nose or heel-to-shin maneuvers. Finally, the language assessment is important in stroke and should consist of a basic screen for fluency, comprehension, reading, naming objects, and sentence repetition. A modified neurological exam exists for stroke called the NIHSS scale. Patients score points based on the severity of their deficits by category, up to three points for aphasia, two for eye deviation, and so on. You can find the NIHSS online, and there are even apps you can download for your smartphone to help you score as you go. Stroke neurologists often refer to the NIHSS score as shorthand for the severity of a patient's stroke deficits. You can find a link to the NIHSS scale on our website. If you get stuck on lesion localization, it helps to remember a few basic principles of vascular anatomy. Anterior circulation syndromes refer to strokes in the anterior or middle cerebral artery. These affect the frontal and temporal lobes, including the motor and sensory cortices, and usually present with unilateral weakness, sensory loss, forced eye deviation, aphasia, or visuospatial neglect. Posterior circulation syndromes refer to strokes in the posterior cerebral or vertebrobasilar arteries. These affect the occipital lobes, cerebellum, and brainstem, and can present with a variety of symptoms including vertigo, ataxia, visual field deficits, diplopia, and weakness of the tongue. Now that we've completed our examination, let's move on to etiology. Probably the most important element of the approach to stroke is the etiology. In other words, where did the clot come from? When thinking about stroke, remember that clots can form anywhere from the most proximal source, for example the heart, to the smallest vessels deep in the brain, not to mention even more remote sources such as paradoxical venous thromboembolism. So it's important to consider where clots form and how they get to the brain. The Oxford Toast classification breaks down stroke etiology into one of four categories. One, large artery atherosclerosis, or thromboembolism from the proximal vessels between the heart and the brain. This includes the carotid arteries that travel up the neck and branch off into the middle and anterior cerebral arteries in the circle of Willis. Two, cardioembolic, meaning any clot coming from the heart. In practice, this is most commonly due to atrial fibrillation, 
But in other cases, stroke can come from cardiac thrombus, valvular disease, or infections like endocarditis. This may also include clots that are shunted from the venous system through a patent foramen ovale, or PFO. 3. Small vessel disease. This refers to smaller, perforating vessels in the brain that supply the brain's deep structures like the basal ganglia and the thalamus. The conventional wisdom is that these vessels get occluded not by thromboembolic clots, but by lipohyalinosis, or buildup of small vessel disease due to risk factors such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. These are the so-called lacunar strokes that affect deeper structures in the brain and tend to look like small holes or lacoons on imaging. 4. Other. Here would be strokes secondary to things like dissection, vasculitis or connective tissue disease, hypercoagulable conditions such as APLA syndrome, vascular diseases like Moyamoya syndrome, and so on. And 5. Unknown. Around 20-40% to 40% of strokes are so-called cryptogenic, meaning no etiology is identified even after the standard stroke workup is done. Now that we understand stroke etiology, it becomes easier to approach the workup and management of stroke. The stroke workup aims to identify the source of the clot, and treatment is targeted towards eliminating or modifying that source. A standard stroke workup in most centers consists of three essential things. Brain and vessel imaging, cardiac investigations, and a metabolic bloodwork panel. First, brain imaging can be done with CT or MRI depending on availability. This is used to identify the area of ischemia and assess for the possibility of hemorrhage. Vessel imaging should be done with CT angiography. Carotid Doppler ultrasound is often used as an alternative, but has the disadvantage of not being able to visualize the intracranial vessels or the posterior circulation. Second, cardiac investigations, particularly a 48-hour Holter monitor to look for atrial fibrillation, and in select patients, such as those with a history of hypertension or cardiac risk factors, a 2D echocardiogram to look for structural abnormalities or a cardiac thrombus. And third, standard blood work, including a fasting lipid panel and a hemoglobin A1c. Additional investigations, depending on the patient, can include an echocardiogram with a bubble study to assess for a patent foramen ovale, transesophageal echocardiogram if endocarditis is suspected, hypercoagulability markers such as antiphospholipid antibodies, or markers of systemic autoimmune disease if a connective tissue disease is suspected. These are not standard investigations, but should be done in patients for whom there is a suspicion of an alternative etiology. Once we've identified the source of the clot, management strategies should be targeted towards the patient's identified etiology. If vessel imaging identifies high-grade carotid stenosis, generally defined as between 70 and 99%, management options include carotid revascularization, such as endarterectomy or stenting. If atrial fibrillation or a cardiac thrombus is identified, patients should be anticoagulated. Finally, strokes caused by small vessel disease should be managed with aggressive control of risk factors like hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Regardless of etiology, all patients should have a few key medications on board for secondary stroke prevention. Let's talk about our ABCDs. A is for antithrombotics, meaning either antiplatelets or anticoagulation. There's good evidence for antiplatelet therapy for secondary prevention of ischemic stroke in almost all patients. Aspirin or clopidogrel are the mainstays of antiplatelet therapy. The POINT and CHANCE trials looked at the role of dual antiplatelet therapy, or DAPT, for patients with minor strokes or high-risk TIAs, and found that DAPT for 21 days may be useful in reducing recurrent strokes or TIAs. Standard anticoagulation is indicated in patients where there is documented evidence of atrial fibrillation. 
B is for blood pressure. Generally speaking, after the first 24 hours, secondary stroke prevention guidelines recommend targeting a blood pressure of 140 over 90 in non-diabetic patients and 130 over 80 in diabetic patients. Within the first 24 hours of a stroke, permissive hypertension allows for systolic blood pressures up to 220 in order to increase perfusion to ischemic areas. C is for cholesterol. There is good evidence for high-dose statins in secondary stroke prevention, using a torvastatin 80 mg daily as per the SPARKLE trial. Target an LDL of less than 2.0. And finally, D is for diabetes. Target an HbA1c level of less than 7.0%. Here is where diabetes education, including nutrition and exercise, can be very helpful. Evidence and literature on secondary stroke prevention is broad and scenario-specific. Canadian guidelines can be found at www.strokebestpractices.ca. For our Medicine Minute today, we're going to talk about a code stroke. A code stroke is a hyperacute stroke, and having a quick approach to this situation is important for any internist. A quick word of caution. If your centre has a dedicated stroke team, activate the stroke team as soon as possible if you suspect that your patient may be having an acute stroke. First, as always, remember your ABCs. Ensure the patient is vitally stable before proceeding with any other assessment. Call for help if you need extra support with airway or hemodynamic support. Once you've ensured that your patient is stable, proceed with a typical stroke history and physical exam that we talked about earlier in this podcast. With hyperacute strokes, the NIHSS is often used instead of the full neurological exam, both to save time and to standardize the assessment so that the NIH score can be used to describe the severity of a patient's deficits. On history, it is also important to identify any clear contraindications to TPA treatment for patients with hyperacute stroke. Is the patient on anticoagulants? Is there a history of bleeding, particularly intracranial bleeding? Do they have a known platelet or bleeding disorder? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then TPA may not be safe for your patient. Obtain stat blood work, including CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, and a coagulation profile. Never forget to also check the patient's glucose level. Obtain an ECG at the bedside to look for atrial fibrillation. Patients should be put on a cardiac monitor to monitor blood pressure continuously, particularly if there is any concern about hemodynamic status. The most important step in the initial assessment is to get the patient to a CT scanner as soon as possible. Always start with a plain CT of the head to look for acute blood or evidence of a large infarct, both of which can change management right away. Additional sequences should include CT angiography and CT perfusion, which can identify an acute vessel occlusion and map out surrounding areas of ischemia. IVTPA should be considered in any patient who is within 4.5 hours of onset of symptoms and who has no contraindications to TPA treatment. The dose is calculated based on patient's body weight, with 10% being pushed as a bolus and the remaining 90% infused over an hour. Any stroke patient who receives TPA should be admitted to a monitored setting for at least 24 hours, with close observation for changes in neurologic or hemodynamic status. Endovascular therapy, or EVT, is quickly becoming a mainstay of therapy for acute stroke. The concept of mechanical thrombectomy for stroke has been around for decades, But with recent advances in technology, the trials for EVT are remarkably positive and this is rapidly becoming the standard of care in major stroke centers. Patients qualify for endovascular therapy if they have a large vessel occlusion, 
generally speaking the proximal MCA or ACA, or the basilar artery, with significant deficits, usually NIHSS greater than 5, and no evidence of a large evolving infarct on CT. Relative to TPA, the time window for EVT is lengthening, with emerging evidence that patients can benefit from EVT up to 24 hours after symptom onset. In stroke centers with EVT, there is usually an interventional neuroradiology team that can be notified if there is a patient who is a candidate for thrombectomy. So, piece of cake, right? Far and away, the most sensible way to approach stroke is to think about where clots come from and how to find them. Remember, time is of utmost importance. Over the coming years, advances in stroke care will likely be able to stretch our timeframes for lytic or EVT therapy, so always make sure to be up to date on your guidelines and to call your neurology colleagues if you're ever in doubt. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work, entitled A Stroke of Bad Luck. Hopefully this episode can ease some anxiety about rotating through neurology or seeing acute strokes. Remember, we have an infographic and links to some of the guidelines mentioned at www.theinternetwork.com. This episode was written by Dr. Priscilla Kwan, neurology resident, and reviewed by Dr. Amy Yu, neurologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Dr. Leah Karianopoulos. Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamoan. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.